Right. Good morning, Lighthouse. Can you hear me? Okay, good. Right. So, you're ahead of the game now because you know what I'm going to talk about. But originally, I brought a cut down version of this message to the last men's breakfast. But with some input and leading on the Holy Spirit, I've adapted that message for you today. So I'm going to look at a passion in Christ. So before I get into this, let me set the scene. Here's the list, in no particular order, of some of the most influential or inspirational people within the 21st century. Now, as I said, the men had already a glimpse of this one, but I have adapted it slightly. Okay. Nelson Mandela, civil rights leader who played a great part in ending apartheid in South Africa and tackling poverty worldwide. Stephen Hawkins, renowned scientific mind of this generation. Author Winfrey is now rated as one of the most influential women in the world. Right. <laughs> Bill Gates, co-founder of Microsoft. He and his wife have pledged 95% of their wealth to charity and research in health and education in the US of A. Now you don't hear much about that. You hear more about Microsoft, but you don't hear about that bit. Pele, Brazilian striker remembered for his excellent scissor kick goals, but also now for his humanitarian works that he does. Angela Merkel, currently Chancellor of Germany, but the most successful elected female politician in history, beating even Margaret Thatcher. Another name, which I'm not going to put a picture up for, is Hitler. Megalomaniac who almost took over the whole world. But he is an influential person of the 21st century because the world did significantly change after his impact. I then looked around for men who changed the world because it was a men's breakfast. And I came up with some names. Do you think, well, you can shout out really quickly, which names do you think met the top 10 of 10 men who changed the world, excluding the one I just said, Hitler? Churchill, Churchill yeah. Jesus, yeah. Kennedy. Kennedy, John F., yeah. Gandhi. Any others? Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King. Okay. <laughs> Ten was Nelson Mandela, who we already spoke about. This is all ages. Yeah, this is across the time that we've been around. Nine, Abraham Lincoln, American president who helped end slavery. One that you mentioned, Martin Luther King, renowned non-violent civil rights leader. The Prophet Muhammad, central figure of the Islam faith. William Shakespeare, the famous English poet and playwright. Five, Sir Winston Churchill, your great prime minister in the Second World War. Four, Lord Buddha, we know he's the central figure of Buddhism. Three, Mikhail Gorbachev. Now you're thinking, what is he doing in that list? Yes. But he, did, but he was the one that was in power when the Soviet Union changed significantly. And the world isn't the same again. Two, Thomas Jefferson. A key president who led into the foundation of the US of A. But number one is Jesus Christ. Yeah. 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 So I'm sure you would have had some names that I think would have met, been in your top ten. But while doing my research, I did find that Jesus featured a number of times and mostly in the top two or three. That's the impact. One writer joked, you have to respect someone who 2,000 years after his death has impacted billions of people even to this day. And the number is still growing. I believe these men are remembered in history because they had a passion that had significant impact on the world. Now I've seen that passion can be born out of injustice or need. So I checked out a couple of definitions on passion. And I found passion can be a strong and barely controllable emotion. 
It can be a state or outburst of strong emotion. That's when your baby's having an anger tantrum. For no reason, they're holding their breath, they're going red, and they're just going for one. Intense sexual love. I'm going to leave that at that. Intense desire or enthusiasm for something or a thing arousing great enthusiasm. But it can also mean now the sufferings and the death of Jesus. So you may say, is passion the same as desire? Well, I looked at desire last year with you guys and the definitions I came up with was passion, uh, desire is about passion, hunger, being devoted, single-minded, directed, purposeful, driven, longing, hopeful, craving or coveting. But I'd like to make a distinction. I observe between passion and desire, desire is normally something that comes from inside of you. You desire a drink, you desire food, sometimes you desire a partner, but these are surface needs. I believe a godly passion originates from a much deeper place, where mind, body, soul, with the power of the Holy Spirit and the sovereign will of God, all have to cooperate for it to be fulfilled. I believe a desire you can always put down or replace with something else. So you might want a scale electric set, but you get a Tyco racing set. The same cannot be said of passion. I've seen passion consume people as it drives them beyond their limits to ensure it gets completed. That's where some earthly passions will run out of steam, while a godly passion will strive and seek for the help of others to complete it. God clearly shows us we cannot, we can do more together than we can separately. That was a key lesson he taught Elijah. Passion won't leave you alone. It will be on your mind day and night. And you can't rest until you do something. I'm going to pick on my friend Joe here who's in the congregation. Sorry Joe. But my friend Joe gave a testimony at the men's meeting last week. About something that God had laid on his heart. And he didn't want to do it like most of us. God lays something on our heart and we say, that's not me Lord. It's not me. But God had a plan. And what was the outcome Joe? You did it. Amen. That's what passion's about. Desire is you've got a choice. Passion, it, when it's there, it won't let you go till you do something. So what should drive our passion? I'd like to look at some aspects that passion brings or develops. For example, many people are passionate about research for cancer. Cancer's touched many hearts, many lives. It's touched my families. We know about the pastors. And I'm sure there's cancer Maybe uh, you've been impacted by cancer at some point in, in all your hearts and families' lives. So someone may be passionate about this because a loved one has or is suffering or died due to it. Or maybe they have cancer and do not want to see others suffer in the same way. Passion is going to drive people. For most people, their passion is driven by necessity or purpose. As Christians, we need to ask the question, are we passionate in what we do in life? And are we passionate in what we need to do for God? We as Christians should have a passion to see people receive Christ so they can receive new life to overcome the trials of life and ultimately save them from a fate we would not wish on our own worst enemy. I believe godly passion is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is fueled and maintained by him. The Holy Spirit reveals God's will and purposes to us and then empowers us with the strength and wisdom to follow and fulfill that passion. There are a number of examples of Bible characters whose passions God used for his purposes. So this is my opinion, this is not necessarily a theologian opinion. So passion against injustice, Moses popped up in my head straight away. And then Jesus, maybe it should be the other way around, it should be Jesus, then Moses. Then passion to uphold God's honour, David, again, popped into my mind. But Elijah also played in, in my mind with that one as well. And then passion for God's people. Again, Jesus should be on the forefront of all of these. But for my uh, opinion, the Nehemiah, the prophets, and then the Apostle Paul, who will come on to them later. So Moses had a passion to free God's people from oppression from the Egyptians. <clears throat> That's a long story. I'm just going to take a snippet. Exodus 2, 11. Many years later, when Moses had grown up, 
he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. David, King David, had a passion to protect the name and honour of God. He put aside doubt and fear to take on a giant while the Israelite army stood paralysed with fear to defend the honour of Almighty God. 1 Kings tells us that story. Soon the Israelite and Philistine forces stood facing each other, army against army. David left his things with the keeper of the supplies and hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Have you seen the giant, the men asked. He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give that man one of his daughters for a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempt from paying taxes. David asked the soldiers standing nearby, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? I just want to make a note there. There was quite a good um, reward there, if you listen carefully on that one, about you get a wife and you're exempt from taxes for life. (laughs) How many of us would like that? Amen. But but this, just to get you, bring you back on track, David didn't do it because he wanted to be a tax evasor. He did it for the honour of God. Amen. Amen. Elijah had great passion and commitment towards God. And God used it to confront the evils of that time, constantly speaking for Elijah to draw the people away from their wickedness, as we see in 1 Kings 18. And at the time of the offering of the oblation or sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Okay. I've just taken an excerpt of that, but the big story is Elijah was constantly a fawn in the king of the time who was Ahab. Ahab, the most wicked king ever written about in the Bible. There is no contest there. He was truly wicked. Took the country into some wickedness that goes beyond measure. And God had the one man, Elijah, who was constantly going to him and saying, you're wrong, and God is telling you you're wrong. And he was a constant form. This man had to hide. But then there was a showdown. And King Ahab, no, God, it was God's idea, said, all right, I'm going to bring all my prophets, hundreds of them. And you, one, are going to have the opportunity to show how powerful your God is. And they were cutting themselves. They were doing all sorts of foolishness, the, the hundreds of prophets. And they couldn't bring down anything. Nothing happened. Elijah prayed. And this is the outcome of it. He came to that time when he had to show his, the power of his God. And this is what happened. And you don't know the preparation that happened before. Because there was a big sacrifice that was made. There was fire that was being built. There was wood, logs. But then they poured water. Lots of water on these logs. Now we know, in living in this country... That to start a fire in this sort of weather is nigh on impossible, isn't it? But in those conditions, Elijah had logs that were completely soaked. And he didn't bring the fire. It's not like they had a flint knife. You don't see him saying, oh, I'm putting two pieces of stone together trying to get a spark. He prayed to God. God from heaven brought fire down. That's the God we serve. Nehemiah, after hearing a report of the state of his home country, and after praying for days, was challenged enough to voice his concerns to the king in a foreign country. 
and then motivate his fellow countrymen to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. After his people had been defeated physically and mentally in Nehemiah 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, I think, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. And I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favour in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the seat of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Now again, the history to this is, the king we're hearing about here is the Persian king. And the Persian king was used by God to completely obliterate the Israelite nation. They tore Jerusalem down, so it was completely obliterated. And prior to this, there was a message from one of Nehemiah's family. And he bring the news about the state that the Jerusalem was in. And Nehemiah was greatly grieved. And he, he, he went into prayer. And he was praying and fasting for a, a good time. And God heard his prayer. And this was the outcome. Now again, think of the situation. I think a similar situation is Esther. Queen Esther, when she approaches the king and asks him for something. She has no right to ask anything, being the queen. But she did. She took a chance. The king could have said to her, no, and I'm going to kill you anyway and take another wife. Nehemiah was in, in a worse situation. He was a servant, not a queen, a servant. And he's entering into the presence of a king. A king who had already obliterated his nation. So he's not like he's got any qualms about killing his, his um, nation. Why is he going to have any qualms about killing him? So he's a servant. He's a humble servant. Yet he's sad. Now, if you watch any of those feet in the men's breakfast, I confess I watched Downton Abbey, and I've confessed it just now. But, yeah, don't worry, stop now. <laughs> but again, the servants wouldn't say anything untoward. They'd make sure they'd look a certain way, they'd be smiling. It's just like you, you want to go into Tesco's, you don't be looking at them, I don't want to be here, sort of face. You want that sort of face that the Americans have cultivated and say, welcome. You're, you're welcome here. We, you know, I'm going to serve you with a smile. That's the sort of attitude he's, he was supposed to have. Yet he was sad. Now the king could have said, he's miserable, off of his head, bring me someone who's smiling. <laughs> no, he didn't. What he did was he asked him a question. Why are you sad? Because normally maybe Nehemiah was really upbeat. Maybe he was happy. You know, that's something a Christian normally is. You go into the, the, the workplace and you're the one smiling. No, they're, they're not happy. You're the one that's happy. You're the one that's got... Ask him the question. And he tells him, you know, my, 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 my nation's in ruins. And he says, well, what, what would you want to do? And he says, I want to go back. I want to rebuild it. Now, the Persian nation obliterated his nation because they were a threat. And his servant now is saying... Let me just pop back to the country and rebuild it again. What does the king do? He says, go on. You know God is at work there. Common, in a common sense approach, that ain't right, is it? You don't obliterate a nation and then tell them, all right, go and rebuild it again. We just have to obliterate it again. No. But he allows him to go and rebuild Jerusalem, and he does. The Apostle Paul had the passion to preach the gospel where it had not been heard or seen. And he also had a passion to see the Jewish nation receive salvation in Jesus our Lord. Romans 15 verse 20. My ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard rather than where a church has already been started by someone else. I have been following the plan spoken of in the scriptures where it says those who have, not, those who have never been told about him will see and those who have never heard of him will understand. What I want to make clear here is Paul isn't being boastful there. He's not saying, oh, because that person built a church, I'm not going to go to that church. 
he's got a bigger plan. He's saying, that church is built. Those people are okay. I want to go somewhere that hasn't seen the gospel, that hasn't heard the gospel, that needs to hear the gospel. That's the point he's trying to make there. In his time, God used Paul powerfully to release the gospel to the Gentiles. That's us. If you read the story, Jesus was sent for the Jewish nation. That's what the prophets all prophesied about. It also said us, but Paul was the one that significantly helped the gospel be preached in the Gentile nations. And in his words, there is still great benefit of today to us as believers, both Jews and Gentile alike. So even though he didn't see the Jewish nation at that time receive salvation, his words are helping those who are now receiving salvation. However, the man with the greatest passion for God's will is Jesus Christ, our Lord Saviour, whose passion to fulfil the purposes of God opened the only way for us to receive salvation. John 8, from verse 27. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. He had a passion to obey God, do his many and wondrous works, and by God's will and purpose, become our saviour, redeemer, baptizer, healer and coming king. His passion was to see his father almighty God revealed to the world. The unknown God now seen and heard through his son Jesus Christ and revealed to his adopted children, the church and to those who would believe. However, throughout history man has chosen his relationship with himself and mankind over his relationship with God. From Adam and Eve through to Moses' time, through to Jesus' time, mankind has always chosen to take the cheaper, less profitable, less valuable relationship with men over the precious gift, honour and privilege of being in a relationship with God. Even God has a passion. He wants his people, the church, to have a passion for the lost, for there is a great need of his love in this world. But I believe his greatest passion is that you would desire an intimate relationship with him through his son Jesus, to love him, acknowledge him and follow him. In doing so, you will find peace, joy and purpose like you have never known. And through this experience of walking with him, he will ignite a passion which no woman or man car or bike or football team could ever compare to. I've just chosen those ones because those are the, the most popular things that people would look for. We know with Jesus his passion was what drove him. His passion for us is what drove him to the cross. His passion to please the Father drove him to obey and follow and do as the Father had instructed him. Who's seen the film Field of Dreams by Kevin Costner? of you okay it's more than a baseball film so if you can try and watch it it's about a farmer called Ray who has a vision and a passion to build a baseball field in the middle of his cornfield in Iowa now you're thinking what's significant about that alright first off he's a farmer he's not a baseball player and he wants to build a baseball pitch in the middle of Iowa Iowa is farming land not baseball land. That's the significance. Okay, so he's out of his out of his depths on all levels there. Yeah. His brother-in-law could not see the field of dreams. What I'm trying. Okay, there's more to it than this, but I don't want to spoil the film for you. So I'm just trying to give you the highlights. There was something significant about the field of dreams. His brother-in-law could not see the field of dreams. For us as Christians, many cannot see the plan of God until He awakens them opens their eyes through faith, and they see life in a very different way. Ray had a choice. Keep hold of what he had, his cornfield, and save his farm, because he went into a a position where he was going to lose the farm, or follow his passion. He chose the greater purpose. Some might say his destiny, but he had to take a step of faith. 
Each person needs to take a step of faith into your unknown. It's scary, but you are better for the experience. He was driven by something he did not understand. But the outcome was not only that he was blessed, but also many others to fulfill their dreams. His passion and faith ignited the faith of others who had lost theirs, even his brother-in-law. Noah was driven to build an ark. Some might say, well, God told him to, so of course he's going to do it. Look at the Bible. Plenty of stories is when God has said, I need you to do this, and the person didn't do it. And I'm sure we're all in the same boat, yeah? No pun intended there. But Noah was driven to build an ark. Yeah. God told him a flood was coming. Now, no one would have seen a catastrophe of that level before. They wouldn't have seen flooding. I know we, we complain about the flooding that we get in Harlow. Yeah, okay. You've got to get things in perspective sometimes, yeah? But now you guys have films like The Day After Tomorrow. I'm sure most of the guys here have seen The Day After Tomorrow, yeah? Anyone hasn't? Well, go and watch the film anyway. And then there's a film called 2012. That is about flooding. That one is about flooding. That one wasn't so good. Go and watch the other one. But these give you the indication of the sort of flooding that happened in Noah's time. And he wouldn't have been able to visualise that sort of destruction. We can, but he couldn't have. He followed God's directions to a T. And we see the ark didn't spring any leaks. And was sturdy enough to accommodate major animals like elephants and rhinos. A major feat in itself. I am so glad I was not the zookeeper on that one. Yeah, mucking up time would have been a, a great pleasure on that boat. The ark displaced more than 22,000 tons of water. And had over 101,000 square feet of floor space. And due to its design, modern naval architecture reveals it's the most stable ocean-going vessel that has ever been on the water and will be almost impossible to turn the ship over. So no Poseidon adventure for the, for the ark. It was going to be built for purpose. Let's look at the story. Genesis 6 from verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their weight on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Mark yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Sorry, my gone ahead. 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, And your sons wise with you. And of every living thing of all flesh. You shall bring two of every sort into the ark. To keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds. And of the animals according to their kinds. Of every creeping thing of the ground. According to its kinds. Two of every sort. Shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten. And store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. I think, and I think the Bible pretty much indicates it, Noah faced ridicule in the many years of building the ark. As I said, if you put it in context, they had not seen a catastrophe of that level. So everyone else was thinking, yeah, you, you, what a little shower? What, what's that going to do? What's that going to wash away? Even today, if the modern day version of it will happen today, wouldn't we be mocking the person building that big ark? Yeah. Most of us would. We're thinking, yeah, we get a lot. Of, we get a bit around. It's, it's not going to be cat- catastrophic levels, but they were mocking him. 
And they were doing it for quite a while. Some predict he was building the ark for 75 to 80 years. Is that about right? 75 to 80 years. From the time God spoke to him. It's a long time. I'm praying I'm not working that long. But um, <laughs> he was already hundreds of years old before he started building the ark. And he's taking, people are just giving him jip for nearly 80 years. And he's trying to, tell, he's trying to save them. It's not like he's doing this for fun. He's saying to them, this, is, this will save you. They weren't listening. There's a big debate about how long it actually took him. But no matter how long it took, he never stopped until it was completed. People of passion are often ridiculed. Don't be surprised if you have a passion that some people will put you down about it until they understand or respect your passion. He had a purpose to save those chosen by God to repopulate the earth after the flood. In one way, we have a similar remit as Christians. God uses us to bring others to Christ. And when Jesus comes, he will raise all of us believers to populate a new heaven and earth. It is the great commission given to us by Jesus before he returned to the Father. So you can see the parallel there, yeah? People may be mocking you now. I'm sorry to be, you know, this has to be the serious bit. There is a consequence. If you don't listen now, there's a Bayesian saying. They said it on, on Friday. I was at the funeral and they said it on Friday. So if you don't hear, you feel. Very wise words. If you don't hear, you will feel. So what should drive our passion? For me, God, his purposes in our relationship with him. We have a great purpose to fulfill for the glory of God. We need passion, which will lead to purpose. And then that purpose will help you keep your passion fueled. But in all of this, those two will work together for our sanctification. Growing in grace and becoming more like Jesus. Passion brings expectancy. You are eager for something to happen when you have passion. Aren't you? You're eager. You want something to happen. It's like you go to a football match. You're not sitting there to think, oh, the ref looks nice today. <laughs> and if he does, then, you know, we need to talk to you after church. But... Um, it's about you're eager to see your football team win. I'm sorry, that's, um, that's a very male stereotype. But even for a lady, say, when you go to the shops, you're not going to the shops just to shop for food, are you? Most of the time. I'm sure you pass something, oh, that's nice. And you pick that up. There's an, anti- there's an expectation, there's an eagerness, isn't it? If not, you wouldn't bother going to the shops, would you? Okay. So passion brings action. When we work to our strengths, we help others to find their strengths and new opportunities emerge. Passionate people are not afraid to get their hands dirty and muck in. Preparation or preparing others is also a great driver of passion. We want others to be prepared before we go. Jesus and Paul are great examples of this, trying to impart as much as they could for those under their care. Some might say they did not have to do this as we've got the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit can teach us all things. Yes, he can. But God does use willing hearts to reveal the wisdom of God to show us we can do it with us when we trust him. So what can we do to keep our passions from dwindling? I'd say passion is infectious. Others get affected by it. Jesus' passion rubbed off on his disciples and prepared them for what the Holy Spirit would lead them into after Pentecost. Be around people of passion to get encouraged and fired up. Nehemiah's passion to see Jerusalem restored inspired his people to rebuild both their pride and faith that God had not deserted them. A practical. Take a Sabbath. Taking the Sabbath can help reduce passion fatigue. You can't be going full pelt 24-7. It's not healthy, it's not sensible, and eventually you'll die. Simple. We see it in the corporate world, 
That's why those guys who do the, the money and the big responsibilities retire about 30, because if they don't, they'll burn out. Social workers, the, the lifespan of a social worker, not literally, but in their working life, is five years. Five years. I'm not trying to put off social workers or anyone aspiring to be a social worker. But they're under such great pressure and what their job has to do, they can't take more than five years. Doctors, we know, work extremely long hours and some of them burn out at training stage and don't become doctors because of the pressure. So the same principle applies for us. God set the principle right at the beginning, Genesis. Worked, worked for six days and it was good, but then he rested. Even Jesus rested and took breaks. We're not Superman. We don't have a big S on our chest. Be practical. Yeah? That's right. In taking the break, this will bring you new focus and energy. So it's helpful to you. So you need to do it. Try and gain encouragement from role models. Focus on what others now and before us, be it in the Bible or in life, endured for the gospel. And this can encourage you or even rekindle a passion that good for God and his purposes. So it's like I joked at the men's breakfast. If you're having a bad day, think of Job. Yeah? Most of, the, most of us remember Job. Job was the one that was afflicted, greatly afflicted with sores. and his, He lost his family, he lost his, his wealth, you know, all the monetary stuff, but that wasn't important. What he grabbed hold of was his relationship with God. Yes. In all of it, that was his one anchor. It was his one focus, his relationship with God. Absolutely. He asked questions. He was saying, why, Lord, why? Right. But he never said, Lord, I've, I've had enough. That's it. Never did. He held on to that. Right. It's the same for us. We need to do the same. So it's that sort of thing. Have those role models ready. Because you're going to need, there will be times and you'll need those role models. They're in the Bible. The thing is, all of it's in the Bible. Yes. I'm not, I'm, it's not like I'm making it up. It's in black and white. All you've got to do is read it. Right. The Lord will show you all of these examples. Although trials and failure can hinder passion, they can also rekindle passion, just as much as success can. Many great breakthroughs would not have happened if people had given up their passion after failing a number of times. Make sure the passion is right for you and what God wants you to do. I mean, just in the world today, the things we take for granted, you know, screens, electricity. There are still some parts of the world that don't have electricity. Yeah, We take it for granted. But when that guy was inventing electricity, weren't they laughing at him? Because back in the day, it was all gas and coal. That was the fuel. That was the thing you need to use. Why do you need this newfangled thing that doesn't work? And is it going to sustain anything? That's what they were saying back in that day. And now, if we don't have electricity now, we can't power the microwave. The PC ain't going on. Your hot water system's not going to work. All from this one man who endured quite a bit. Because, again, they don't talk about all the, the, the inventors take a lot of stick. Sorry to go worldly on this, but I'm just saying, you see the contrast. What you take for granted now, you don't see the pain and the suffering that they had to endure so that you can enjoy that benefit. Which leads into... Ensure your passion ultimately is for the glory of God, not yourself or man. That's for us as Christians. But I sort of jumped the gun there. Passion can be painful and lonely. Others may not have or see or feel your passion. And it's going to take a lot for you to win them over to your passion. But if it's from God, he will have this in mind. The reality is we will hit a brick wall at some point with our passion. And when we do, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to reignite the flame and fire of that passion. So continually feed and allow the Holy Spirit to regenerate your passions. So that's why I'm encouraged by the ladies here. You guys are pressing in on Friday. I would say be prayerful. It's a prayer evening, but 
prior to your prayer evening, be prayerful. And see what God, you know, have that eagerness, have that expectation. Lord, your will be done. Do something with us. And I encourage the guys next time we meet up as well. Be it in the men's group or even in the house groups. I feel we need to do that pressing in. Yes. It's time. God's there, but we haven't got that eagerness. We haven't got, David said it earlier. We haven't got that hunger. If you're hungry for something, you, you've got an appetite. I mean, how many guys watch the, uh, the food channels? A lot of you guys watch food channels? Right. All right. That's fine. But you, you understand where I'm going then. The celebrity cooks. And you've just finished, you've come in from work, say, and you've just finished a big meal, and you sit down in front of the TV, and a celebrity chef comes on, and he cooks something. And you're going, you've just had a full meal, you're hungry, you know, you're full. But you're still lucky, you're thinking, mm, that'd be nice. That's hunger. That's anticipation. Why is that? Because as they're cooking, they're saying, they're taking a bit and saying, mm, oh, how lovely. Ooh, ooh, ooh. They're doing all of that. And that is what gets you into that frame of mind. If they were just cooking it, you'd think, okay, they're just cooking it. But they're enjoying it as they're doing it. So you've got to have that sort of mindset. If Christianity isn't about enjoying it while you're living with the living Saviour, then, again, I'll go in the is you're dead already. You're pretty much living dead. If the living Christ in you doesn't make you more alive now, you might as well book the undertakers now. I'm sorry, I'm good. Just, I've got to speak straight. That's it. If you haven't, it's the living God. We keep talking about the living God. You know, stop pretending. Start living. Yeah? Okay. Sorry. Well, ain't got time to be messing around nowadays. This last days, anyway. Passion yearns for and needs prayer. Jesus was always praying for others, but we must not be seen praying for himself at Gethsemane when he faced his greatest challenge himself. I believe he prayed for himself, and I'm talking about his human side mainly, more than the Bible tells us. I believe the same is probably true for us as Christians. The term the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak springs to mind. It states it in Matthew 26. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. So, I think Jesus struggled with his fleshly desires as we do today. But he says a key component to battle this is prayer. Jesus has spoken many times about his kingdom. But only three disciples were entrusted to see the transfiguration. Maybe in these disciples' hearts, they passionately yearn to see and catch a glimpse of it in their lifetime. So before God took them. But before they would be allowed this privilege, Jesus took them away to pray and prepare themselves. Before the kingdom would be revealed. Let's pick this up in Luke 9. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying... And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, 
But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and two men who stood with him. And I'll stop there. So focus on verse 27. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. We put great focus on the revelation of God's glory at the transfiguration. Yes, that's true. But sometimes we miss the significance of the appearance of Moses and Elijah. Was their appearance due to another answered prayer of Jesus to encourage his disciples for the upcoming assault they would soon face for their faith? Both Moses and Elijah had faced trials, both physically and spiritually, with their walk with God. One faced many battles leading a people who did not want to change or follow God. The other faced great darkness in the land and great battles against the forces of evil. Now these two figures were chosen to represent Jesus fulfilling the law and the other to represent Jesus fulfilling the God, all of God's prophecies, the two main components of the Old Testament. Those disciples had a glimpse of God's invisible kingdom. By seeing those who had passed were with God and they were speaking with the one foretold about within the Old Testament. The disciples would be encouraged that what Jesus said was true and this could be a key point for their walk with God that would take them through their own trials to come. Passion encourages prayer. And prayer encourages passion. You cannot have one without the other. Pray a passion into life and keep it alive in prayer. We need to pray to keep our passion for God clearly before us. And he will show you glimpses of his kingdom to encourage you to fight on. And it is a fight. Don't let your passion fall asleep because you will miss something glorious. Again, a film I enjoy and feel has great meaning is It's a Wonderful Life with James Stewart. It's about a man who has a dream. Is there a thing going on here? I don't know. Of exploring the world. But due to circumstances, he's thwarted from his dream, but sees an injustice in his town. The domineering evil landowner, Mr. Potter, and decides to stand up for those who can't. One Christmas, he hits rock bottom and for the sake of his family, tries to commit suicide. An angel Clarence is sent to show him the impact he had on his family, his town, and what would have happened if he had not existed. I won't tell you the ending, but it does end well. But the point I'm trying to make is don't give up on your passions. You don't know the impact or effect you are having, but it is significant and it has a goal. God has a goal for you, it in your life. So, in summary... Godly passion will drive people. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit who fuels it and can also reignite it. It fulfills the purposes of God. It requires a step of faith. And it's infectious and it brings an expectancy. But you need to be aware, people of passion are often ridiculed. Trials and failures can rekindle your passion but it can be painful and lonely. Passion does require prayer and you need to keep God clearly before you. And godly passion ultimately is for the glory of God. So being passionate is healthy for you and the others around you. God is passionate and we should be passionate for the things he is passionate about. Always remember to reignite your passion when it dwindles, and it will dwindle. Don't let it dwindle too long, because it's really hard to start the fire up again. Remember to take a break from your passion sometimes. You're more effective with a fresh passion than a tired one, and see things with fresh eyes and fresh ideas. God will use everyday people to become extraordinary vessels of his glory. That's, the, that's a key theme you, you can see throughout the Bible. Everyday people. We're everyday people, yeah? yeah? But we have something much greater living inside of us. 
who takes us beyond this everyday person. Let his will become your passion and ignite others to see and live for our wonderful, purposeful, gracious, loving and compassionate God. So I'll leave you with a couple of things to think about. Passionate people can and do change the world. And ask God to reveal what he wants you to do for his glory. So I pray you also allow God to ignite a passion in you for his purposes. Because he can and will use you to change our world day by day, month by month, year by year. But it will change with us. Don't leave it to someone else. God's calling you to do something. Play your part. That's it. So I'm just going to pray. And then we'll um, go into, straight into communion. So if the hospitality team could get ready. Heavenly Father, we thank you that our lives would have been so much less purposeful without you. We would have had so much less to live for. But it's only by the passion that you showed us. The passion to save the world. The passion to, to take on the sins that were not even yours but you want to give new life to others. Lord, we thank you and we pray, Father, that if we have a passion in our heart that we've let dwindle, that we've let ebb down, Father, that you allow a fresh fire to come in our hearts to bring expectation, to bring eagerness again. I mean, Pastor David said it at the beginning of the service, when we're, when we're coming to church, we should be expecting to meet with the Holy Spirit. We should be expecting to see God move in a new and powerful way. And Lord, we want our hearts to be in line with you. We know prayer is key. We pray, Father, that even though we were not big prayers, that if we say a prayer of a sincere heart, God hears us. A sincere heart can open so many uh, avenues that we don't understand, that we don't appreciate. But Lord, we know you hear our prayers. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to cultivate our hearts to be more passionate, to be more prayerful. But in all of it, we want it all to glorify your holy name. So, Father, have your way. Lead us into communion. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.